Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 218 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to Text Expander for sponsoring our show. Communicate smarter with Text Expander. Gather, perfect, and share your knowledge. Recall your best words instantly and repeatedly. Learn more at textexpander.com forward slash podcast. And we'd also like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. Well, in our last episode, we had a, a fantastic conversation with Whitney Johnson, the author of uh, the books Disrupt Yourself and, and the new Build an A-Team, about disruption, S-curves, team building, and innovation in a conservative profession. Highly recommended, as are, are both of her books. We plan to do regular interview episodes with guests not associated with the legal industry necessarily. So let us know your suggestions, and we'll see what we can do and who we can bring onto the podcast. In this episode, we decided to take one of our occasional revisits to a topic we covered in the past. And this time it's the Internet of Things, uh, something we first discussed, believe it or not, more than five years ago on the show. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be revisiting the topic of the Internet of Things. Uh, we'll take a look at what has changed, uh, whether people need to be paying a lot more attention to this topic uh, than they currently are. In our second segment, we're going to talk about the class in entrepreneurial lawyering that uh, Dennis will be teaching this fall at Michigan State Law School's Legal R&D program. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second this podcast is over. But first up, the Internet of Things, a, a topic we did a podcast on in March of 2013. I, I want to say that we were one of the first legal podcasts to talk about the Internet of Things, um, or where I think I'm going to say IoT probably more than Internet of Things throughout this podcast. It feels like over the past five years, IoT has settled down to become kind of a natural part of everyone's life. I think that most people in some form are using some device that's connected to the internet. I have to say, though, as I was preparing for this, that there have been a lot of changes. I went back and I listened to the podcast in March. And, and frankly, for me, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the more things change, the more they stay the same. I didn't. The things I want to talk about today don't tremendously differ from uh, from what we talked about before. Uh, Dennis, what what did you think, or, or I guess why did you think it was important to come back to this topic now? Well, I mean, it is possible we were so brilliant five years ago that we predicted all, but I think there are some new things um, and some new ways of, of looking at things. But I, I think one of the things that you said really is the important thing is that we've started to really take the Internet of Things for granted, at least you and I have. I think one of those examples of a technology where you say we we tend to overestimate the impact in the short run back five years ago 
and we underestimate the impact in the in the long run. And I think so. We're out in more of the the long run, and and so I think it's it's been with all the noise lately in legal tech about AI and and some of the other really hot technologies that people like to talk about, it has been just really quiet around Internet of Things. But the Internet of Things, to me, seems like a game changer that is happening every single day as we see more and more devices that we rely on that are connected to the Internet and sometimes surprising devices in that way, and and we start to rely on that. So I think the the number to consider, Tom, is that the the prediction, and this may be going up a little bit even, even more, is 20 billion, that's billion with a B, devices will be attached to the Internet by the year 2020. So that's what roughly, uh, you know, around three times as many devices connected to the internet as there are people on the, on the planet. So I think that's an important number. But Tom, I think you and I know what Internet of Things or IoT means, but maybe it is worth stepping back and, and giving people, our listeners, a good, solid definition of that. Sure. But before we do that, I want to say a couple other things. I mean, your number spot on about how many devices will be attached to the Internet by 2020. I think that we've already passed a milestone. I think they've estimated that the number of IoT devices surpassed the number of smartphones in the world last year. So there are already more of those devices out there. I will say, and I suspect kind of based on what I'm hearing you say and what I think I'm going to say, I may turn out to be the curmudgeon in this episode here, is that, yep, 20 million billion devices may be connected to the internet by 2020, but I'm going to make the argument that the vast majority of that aren't actually the things that are useful to those of us who might use them. I'm going to argue that, and and I don't know if I'm going to get into this more, but they, they are more part of the IIoT, which is a different concept entirely, the industrial internet of things. All of the sensors that are connected to assembly lines and other types of manufacturing and uh, in other places in industries, um, I'm going to argue that that's taking up the majority of the 20 billion. But let's, like, like you said, let's take a step back. Let's look at IoT, Internet of Things, essentially, and I'm just going to say in a, in a very broad way means it is any type of device that can connect somehow to the Internet. And so when I looked at the list that you had put kind of in our, in our pre-work, in our pre-show notes to look at, I looked at the list of things you talked about, watches and Fitbits and scales and medical devices and cars and toys and thermostats and those types of things. Most of those things were actually out in 2013. They were devices that can connect to the internet. My Fitbit back in 2013 could connect to the internet. It would download to my app. I could see what I was doing. Um, I could get regular updates on that. I was also connected to my scale. My scale would take my weight and connect it to my Fitbit app and to a weight loss app that I was using at the same time. And I could see it. Where we've gotten to now is um, we've gotten to your doorbell will connect to the internet so that you're, you can view kind of who's at your door, but you're seeing something that's being stored online. It's connected through a wireless connection. To me, that's just the basic, the basic idea of the Internet of Things. It's a device, not necessarily a phone or a tablet. It could be anything that connects to the Internet and ultimately provides a service to someone, whether it's an individual service to you or, like I mentioned, a service like in the industrial Internet of Things, sensors on an assembly line that tell 
the manufacturers, here's what's happening. And all of those devices are connected via the internet to provide that service. Yeah, I think that uh, what I would say is a good example of that uh, the adoption curve. So I think in five years ago, we were probably in the realm of the early adopters. So it, it took some work to do some things. You might have a few things. I think it's just the quantity and the expectation and in ways that you didn't expect. So the one that's kind of surprising to me that it seems like there's a lot of uptake on is is door locks. That surprised me a little bit. I think it's also surprising when you can't control things by your phone. So in our, our new apartment, we have a garage door opener. And uh, I was just thinking the other day, it's kind of surprising that uh, I, I don't have a way to check to see if the garage door is open when I'm sitting in the living room and then use my phone to, to open and close it. So I, th I think there's that expectation. And we may touch on this. I, th I think a lot of people will be surprised, like if you check your network connections on your phone or your computer and see what's all connected, you're going to find probably a few more devices in your house connected to your network than you expect these days. But I, I think there is that as we've carried around the smartphones, we're used to that, uh, you know, 24-7, anywhere, anytime connection to the internet. We're starting to say, well, shouldn't these other things be collecting information and attaching to the internet? And, you know, why in the medical area, there might have been a few things five years ago. Now I know more people with diabetes who, who you know, have sensors that are like, just run constantly and then transmit information. And you start to say, well, there are a number of things, especially where I'm being monitored for medical reasons, that the internet of things is is starting to make more sense. So I just think it's more of it. I think we're much, you know, farther down on the adoption curve, you know, so so there are more, more people and it's not just early adopters in, in a lot of places. And, and I think you tend to see more places where people would want to use it and where you would like to use it. And, and it's, it's, in some cases, it's going to be surprising to people, say with the elderly and other things where you wouldn't expect that. Those, those types of devices make a lot of sense. I did a check, too, to see how many devices I have connected to the Internet. And and one of the nice things I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that I use Eero as a mesh to create a mesh network for my wireless. It really helps speed up and provide kind of overall wireless to my house. But what's nice is the app that controls uh, the Eero network will also tell me how many devices I've got connected to the Internet at any given time. Um, I checked it just before we started recording, and that number is right at 20 devices. That it includes computers, it includes phones, tablets, a whole lot of Google Home devices. Um, my Peloton bike is connected to the internet. My digital frame, I've got two digital frames. The Ring doorbell, there's a Kindle, the Roku we use on the television, the digital scale that I mentioned before. I would say that that number has doubled in the last five years. So I think you're right. The adoption curve has changed. I think one way that it has helped change is that voice assistants and virtual assistants are really leading the way. I would argue that virtual assistants help us to communicate better with the Internet of Things. They can interact with the devices. They can help them be more useful for us. And frankly, this is where you know, artificial intelligence may be the hot topic, may be hotter than IoT as a, as a rule. But I think this is where they're meeting up, that voice platforms are becoming the new thing. And some experts are going to say that that voice is really going to, and frankly, we've said this, I think, on the podcast, that voice is going to become the user interface of the future, that we will use our voice more often. And it's going to be talking to 
IoT devices that will likely be the way to deal with it. But I will also come back and say that just because you can connect something to the internet doesn't mean that one, you should, or two, that people are going to use it. And I use as my favorite example, Last year at the Consumer Electronics Show, one of the kind of novelty or gadget items was a smart toothbrush that recorded how you brushed your teeth. And I just said, really? Does anybody, why would people care about knowing how your teeth got brushed or what happened? I don't even really understand that use of an IoT device. And so I would argue that Part of the reason why is that people have taken the good ideas that the IoT is being used for and expanded it to ideas that probably shouldn't be done. And so I think part of part of what's happened over the last five years is we've seen a lot of IoT startups that have gone bust because the ideas just weren't that great to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it's that uh, should it be done, does it make sense, you, you know, is, is a big thing out there. I agree with you that the virtual assistants are probably driving a lot of the the acceptance. I also find that a lot of people use webcams more than I ever expected. And then I think in for a lot of people, you know, the medical is one area. I saw somebody at a startup company here in, in Ann Arbor that was doing some things where, that would measure the the amount of work that you were doing while you were working out. And so tracking that, you could see how that'd be useful and, and, and to store it somewhere. I, I think my bike rides are also, it's not an internet of things, but the, the information about it is, is stored in the cloud. And, and so you see the usefulness of that. And then, it, you know, you have the sensors, you go, if I have this stuff and I can use electricity more efficiently and all of that, it starts to make sense. But it, there is that trade-off, you know, so information goes up to someone else in the cloud, you can get information back. That's a good thing. But you kind of want to, you know, you got to consider your privacy, what the value is, what you get out of it, cost benefits. Um, and then the big one is that, uh, Tom, there's no question, Internet of Things is an attack vector for cybersecurity. And the webcams I just mentioned are have uh, surprisingly been in a, in a number of cases the way that people get into networks. Well, we and we discussed it on the podcast, the botnet of things that uh, that was attacking routers and Internet of Things devices was a great example of how IoT devices can be hacked and infected. I, I think there are two major issues with IoT right now that I wish could be solved in some way. One is a practical one and one is a, a, a need to have. For me, security is probably the biggest risk of IoT devices. And I think it's because... It continues to be an afterthought for the product developers. It seems like they add security on at the end of it, and they don't really think about it because they're thinking primarily of the usefulness of the device and the utility and the practicality of it. And then, oh, yeah, we totally forgot that people might want to hack into this and, you know, change the temperature in our smart refrigerator so that all the free, all the stuff in the freezer thaws out. The other thing that I think is unfortunate that it has stayed the same. Back in the, I, on the podcast I listened to, uh, I listened to it again from five years ago, and I was talking about that one main issue was um, the lack of standardization, that there was not any standardization of tools on a common platform. And, and I think mostly this is around the smart home. And I've got to tell you that we still haven't gotten there yet. You know, I, I mentioned as one of my resolutions at the end of last year that I was going to experiment more with 
smart home elements. And I've been doing that primarily in a very low-key way around light bulbs. But the thing is, is that if you're going to have a smart phone, you're still better off if you buy all your light bulbs and your alarm and your doorbell and all the other devices that you want to have to make up your smart home from the same company. Um, it's possible to use devices from different companies, but there won't be a hub or a dashboard or anything that can manage all of them in the same place. And so you're still going to be using multiple apps to manage all the devices. So, you know, security and standardization are number one and two on my wish list of improvements for IoT um, over the next couple of years. And it's worth mentioning, you know, some of the things that people are seeing, especially in the domestic abuse, the divorce area, other things where people are really doing bad things with those smart home devices, with the thermostats, the locks, those sorts of things. And you don't have to, it doesn't take much imagination to have an idea what's going on out there. So that security aspect is big. And then, you know, as it's become easier to attach these things to your network and you don't do the updates as we've talked about and things like that, that you're running, uh, you know, Tom, what you described is a fairly significant network in your house and you're, you're not a network administrator and, but you know more than the average person. And, you know, for people who jump into this, it's something they really need to think about. But I do see it, it growing. So when I was at MasterCard, we had this notion, you were talking about the internet of industrial things, I think you call it, or in, industrial internet of things. So there's a number of things like that. With MasterCard, we had this notion of internet of payment things where these devices that were connected to the internet could be enabled to to do payments uh, again to and to and from so there's a lot of potential out there and, and it also shows how internet of things can go from these small sensors and thermostats to refrigerators that allow you to order and pay for food to your car being a, just like a whole you know, maybe thousands of sensors going uh, going in on in there. So uh, I think that that's what I what struck me about going back to this topic was to, that how much it's the adoption has gone up and our I think our comfort level with it and the utility of it we're seeing more. But let's turn it, Tom, to the world of, of lawyers. So I for me. From what I did in my days of MasterCard, the Internet of Things became really fascinating to me because I think it changes the nature of uh, transactional practice from looking at one-to-one -one things of transactions or products, you know, doing the legal work around products to actually figuring out how platforms and ecosystems work together. So that smart refrigerator that orders food for you is going to have the refrigerator is going to have different operating systems in connection with that refrigerator. It may have a different company doing the display. It may have a MasterCard or, or Visa doing payments. It may have, you know, somebody doing order fulfillment, uh, somebody doing deliveries. And so make Making all those things work together, I think, has changed the nature of the legal issues that, uh, that come up with that. So that's one side of it. But I think the other thing, Tom, I think is e-discovery. Because for me, e-discovery, every time I hear people talk about it, it's all about email and documents. And I look out there and I go, geez, in, like in a car accident case and some other things, I just, I don't think the documents in the email it's probably going to be the most important thing when you have these devices and sensors and the IoT stuff to get into. And 
I, I sort of think that that may be the area of technology competence that lawyers really have to step up to. So if you're in any of those areas, I think you've got to have a basic understanding of Internet of Things. I mean, am, am I kind of jumping a little bit too far in the future, Tom, or what's your feeling on that? Well, I don't think so, but I think that the, um, the, the two things are a little bit separate. So I think that email and other documents are still going to continue to be important in the corporate world. And when we talk about business litigation and things like that, I view IoT evidence as being relevant in criminal cases, in family law cases, in personal injury type cases, in cases where the devices themselves, whatever information they're capturing, you know, product liability cases for being able to measure the sensors on an assembly line to see how something was was manufactured may become relevant somehow. It's already being used. I mean, we're already seeing IoT evidence, but it's primarily being used from both the areas of Fitbits and also with the Amazon Echo. We've actually had some cases. Uh, there was a murder case in Arkansas where they tried to, to get information off the Echo. Amazon declined to do that on, on the basis of privacy, and they wound up actually getting some information from a smart utility meter um, that was used um, uh, on, a, on a hot tub. Uh, so they actually did use some IoT evidence, uh, but not from an Echo or a Fitbit. There have been a bunch of cases out there where Fitbit evidence has been used to show you know, where a person happened to be to establish an alibi, the fact that someone who claimed they were injured was actually working out and seemed to be fine, the fact that a person's heart rate was elevated, indicated that something bad was happening to them, like a like an assault or a sexual assault or something like that. But it's also being used to rebut claims. You know, someone's claiming they're sleeping at a certain time when the Fitbit proves they're, they're up and walking around. So I think it's already being used for those purposes now, and I think it's not too soon to know about it. But there's really, from an e-discovery standpoint, there's really two main issues about using it, I think, as evidence. The first is how to get the data off the device to begin with or off the servers where it's recorded. All the manufacturers, you know, the lack of standardization applies here too. They collect and store data in different ways, which means it's really hard to de develop a standard consistent process. And I think that this is one of the main opportunity areas for e-discovery vendors is to, you know, find a flexible solution that's gonna help them collect and aggregate IoT data. I think that's one of the holy grails of e-discovery. I think the other main issue is how does this information get treated as evidence? You know, is because it's coming from a device, is it automatically more reliable than something that comes out of an individual? Will the judge or jury think that machines can't lie the same way a person can? And so we always have to believe the machine over the device? Or are we going to recognize that IoT data actually still has to be interpreted, that there, there is a subjective element to the information that you get? And I think we've still got a ways to go in figuring out, you know, whether the information that comes off of devices can be seen as objective and unbiased. Obviously, there are some constitutional issues. You know, do you have the right to confront your accuser if your accuser is a Fitbit or your Amazon Echo? I'm really intrigued by this and want to see where this heads, but uh, it is not too soon to be knowing about this, especially if you're going to wind up with clients who own these kinds of devices and they may become relevant. You know, Tom, as, as you know, I'm like a big fan of detective shows and British detective shows lately. And, uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, all those shows, it's like there's always, let's go to the CCTV footage. And it's like, there's always uh, footage of something. So that's like a, a another piece of that where you say, wow. I love CCTV, going yes. On. 
I love the idea of it when I'm watching shows. I don't know how much I like it, of it, you know, tracking me through different things. Although sometimes I'm aware of that, especially in parking garages and places. Tom, I, I guess we probably should, we've, we've kind of gone on a while. At, and uh, I, I think it's, uh, for me, IoT is, like I said, it's, it's kind of really come in under the radar. And I, I think it's it's here now and it's something to, to, to focus on. And I, I think it's worthwhile for lawyers and others to think about how how much things have changed and, and how part of the fabric of our networks and our lives that IoT has has become and, and the implications of that. So I guess, Tom, maybe we'll just wrap it up. Is it as simple to say, are we pro-IT or anti-IoT? Or is it maybe like I feel that, you know, there's good and bad, we got to get on top of it, but it's it's something that's really come in to stay. Oh, well, I'm definitely pro-IoT. I mean, I, I think that, that there are many more benefits uh, to the Internet of Things than, than disadvantages or risks or other issues. I think like any other technology, you've got to learn how it works, make sure you use it the right way, and, um, and you know, take care of yourself. So I, I'm a little bit uh, less certain that I, I think we're still coasting along. I think that the Internet of Things is something that in some industries is really plowing ahead, but in the personal use area, I think we're still kind of, uh, you know, people may be using them more, but I don't see these leaps and bounds that we may have seen four or five or six years ago. So I'm interested to see where it goes. But right now, I'm thinking it's going to be a little sleepier than, uh, than, than, than maybe it expects to be. All right, before our next segment, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Text Expander helps you communicate smarter. You get home from an event where you've met some potential clients. You create a text expander snippet with a follow-up message, use fill-in fields for the contact name and custom topic, quickly produce personalized emails to everyone by expanding and filling in your snippet, share your snippet with colleagues, and everyone gets done faster. Visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast for 20% off your first year. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We thought we'd do something a little different in this segment, as we always seem to be doing. I'll be teaching a class this fall in entrepreneurial lawyering at Michigan State's Law School's Legal R&D program, which is a really cool program they have to develop lawyers uh, with some focus on technology and uh, business savvy and, and some other new approaches to education. The class is already full, so I'm excited about that. So we thought maybe we'd let me talk about the class by having Tom ask me the questions he thinks that you, our audience, would like to ask me. 
Tom, the audience is depending on you, so let's get started. Well, audience, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask some really simple, basic questions. So I hope that's what you were you were aiming for. So Dennis, tell us real quick about how this got started. Is this a brand new class, the legal R&D program? Is the entrepreneurial lawyering class brand new? Kind of tell us what the genesis was of that. Well, I think that the legal R&D program goes back four or five years or so ago. And so you have Dan Katz, who's at Chicago Kent, who's well known for bringing data analytics into into the legal profession. Ken Greddy, who's done a a number of things, was also involved in that. Uh, Dan Linna was recently the head of uh, legal R&D, is now uh, moving to Northwestern, and, and Carla Reyes is going to take over the legal R&D program. So it's been around for a while. So there's a notion of some specialized classes, so some are data analytics. I know Carla's going to do a class in artificial intelligence. And then they put together uh, the two classes I'm doing are classes that King Grady taught. And so his background in lean thinking, the things he done, he's done at Seiferth uh, and other things that he's done, he's pulled into there. So there's this real notion of lawyers need to understand business, they need to understand technology. And so the two classes I'll be doing, I see are sort of foundational. So we'll look at, in this class, we'll look at some of the standard approaches to starting businesses. Uh, could be a law practice, could be other things associated with legal. We'll look at things like the business model canvas, other things like that. And then I'm also going to, to also talk about the whole range of, of technologies that are now coming into the law practice. So, I mean, if you know me, it's all, all these things are right up my alley and I, I love what Ken's created. And so we'll be doing some projects and, you know, deliverables and, and uh, presentations and pitches and stuff like that. So it'll be a fun class to, to learn things. Okay, so you blew right past my second question. You went right into it, so I'm not going to get to ask you, well, tell me what you're going to be teaching about. So I'll ask my third and final question, which is, can you let us in on what the topic is going to be for your first session? Have you planned it yet? Do you know what the required reading is going to be for the first session or what the topic's going to be? Yeah, so so what I'm going to add, I'm going to use two books. So one is the, I think it's called E-Myth Manager for Lawyers, so Mark, Michael Gerber's book on uh, the E-Myth, which is a really great approach to starting businesses. And this book is focused on lawyer issues uh, especially. So I think it's uh, one of those things that you would have liked to, I would have liked to in law school had a notion of saying, okay, so if I'm actually going to be at a law firm or have my own practice, what are the issues that you would do as if you're starting any, any business? And the other thing that builds on what Ken did is the business model of Canvas, which is uh, Alex Osterwalder's book. And so that's a way, an approach to really organize and think through what a business is, what the parts are going to be, who the customers are going to be, who your partners are going to be, and put that together. So that will be the core of the entrepreneurial thing. And then then time, I think that uh, I'll just start to talk about how technology is is going to be used in the practice and and what's out there because I think that's that's really useful for students. So I it's a two hour class. I just may split it in half and do, you know, one one part the business model approaches and the second the second half of the class technology. So uh, 
that's what I have in mind, and and we'll learn as learn as we go, and uh, there'll be some cool projects. And like I said, it's it's fun to hear already that the the class is sold out. Let's be uh, sure to check back at the end of the semester and see how things went. Now it's time for the parting shots, that one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. All right. I am going to make, and I'm, I hate that I'm doing this, but I'm going to make another plea for my password manager challenge. After the last one and how cool everybody thought it was, I've gotten exactly one request, and I said I would help out three people, and surely there are more listeners who listen to this podcast who either want to get better control over their passwords or don't have the level of control control that they need to get uh, and are willing to, to make a change in how they think about passwords. So drop me a line, shoot me a message on LinkedIn, send me an email, find me on Twitter, any way about it, let me know. My real parting shot actually is that Microsoft Teams, the I will call analog to Slack, but in the Office 365 world is now free. Used to be that you had to have an Office 365 subscription to use Teams. Now you don't. You get a certain level of, of, of service for free. Obviously, you get more if you, if you have the Office 365 subscription, but it's free to anyone. Given that as we are recording this, they are announcing that uh, that Skype for Business is probably going to go away soon and is going to be fully replaced by Microsoft Teams. If you're using Skype for Business or if uh, any of that is interesting to you, it is well worth your while to do Teams and to try out Teams, take a look at it. Um, we use it all the time in our in, in our work. I really love it. I think it's a great communication tool. It's a, it's a worthy competitor to Slack, especially if you're involved in the um, Microsoft uh, Office environment. So uh, Microsoft Teams. So I have a tip that will make your Facebook life much, much better. And it's not to, you know, quit Facebook. It's actually to use uh, a feature called Hide in Facebook. And so if you're like me, your Facebook feed is just or it was until recently, it was just filled with uh, reposts of all kinds of political stuff, all sorts of weird oddball, sometimes politically incorrect humor and other weird interests that people have. And it's just like people reposting stuff. And so I, I reached this point yesterday where I, I said, uh, I feel that half of my Facebook feed is talking about the imminent end of civilization as we know it, and the other half is in an uproar over the delay in the uh, the relaunch of, of Planters Cheese Balls. So, you know, with Facebook, I, I, there's a lot of things I want to know about people, so I don't want to, to unfollow, but there's this great feature called Hide. And what I find it useful for is, although you can either, you can hide individuals or you can like give, put them on like a 30 day timeout. What I find it really useful for is the people who just repost a bunch of stuff. You can hide all the stuff that comes from that place that they've reposted. So you could just eliminate, I ruthlessly eliminated all political stuff, uh, which will probably confuse Facebook because they won't be able to predict what my politics are anymore. And I eliminated tons of humor, pet stuff, but it's so you can do that hide thing and then you you don't lose the people. You just what you get from him is more the stuff you got on Facebook for in the first place is what they're actually doing. And you don't get this sort of reflexive reposting of, of 30 third party content. So when you see something like that, you, there's like a, just a little place at the, the right hand corner, you drop down the menu and one of the options is going to be hide everything from 
you know, uh, politically incorrect humor, uh, dot com or whatever. And then you just hide it and then, uh, you don't see it anymore. And your Facebook, uh, feed just becomes a much more pleasant place to, to hang out at. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, make sure you reach out to us on LinkedIn or leave us a voicemail. Remember, we like to get questions for our B segment. That number is 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.